Welcome back to Dateline New Haven. We're going over over the regular time here today on WNHH Radio. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven and Connecticut tick. Joe Gannam, the mayor of our sister city of Bridgeport down the snowy road today, is looking to make our city and our state tick. He formally announced his candidacy Wednesday for the Democratic nomination for governor. And Mayor Gannam is here in the WNH studio today during the blizzard to update us on his plans. Welcome, Mayor Gannam. Thanks for making it in. Well, thank you. Thanks for um, having me. And um, yes, it was a little bit of a slow trek here. So my apologies for being late. My apologies to your to your listeners and to you. Oh, no problem at all. I'm glad you made it, Joe. If I'm going to ask you to get a little closer to the mic so we can hear you a little stronger. So what were the roads like? We heard that by Long Wharf on I-95 stuff was stopped. There were accidents. What, what, what is the situation? Because this is the height of the blizzard, one to three inches an hour. Um, what are you seeing? Well, roads, uh, local roads plowed um at least the main roads seem to be plowed in, in both cities. Um, but, you know, the, as you say, the one to three inches quick, uh, quickly accumulates again. So maybe they're going for a second and third pass. I think it's going to be a lot of hard work for, for all the public works guys. State police are out there. I'm sure local police are out there trying to respond for safety calls and for accidents. I didn't see any accidents in this stretch on I-95. We came up from Bridgeport to um, New Haven. But uh, we did... We did um, run into some pretty deep pockets with the winds. I think you're seeing. Um, They're saying that's spots. what makes this a uh, a monster storm is yeah. the combination of dropping barometric pressure, which I don't really understand. That's the phrase I hear weathercasters say. Um, Forty mile an hour gusts, and then one to three inches an hour leading up to a, a, a foot. That's more than if you just had snow come down. Absolutely, and um, you know, so the, the good news is we're here. The bad. What I think we want to tell everyone else is don't almost a stupid way don't do what we we did stay home if you can <laughs> really it's um there's there's no mileage or, or no advantage i think unless you have to go out and, and and paul you know we both at least i debated whether it was a good move to come here but i wanted to make the i made the commitment i wanted to be here if it was just you i'd be eh, but your <laughs> listeners you know we care about the listeners and and everyone else is here and so uh so i wanted to be here Thank so I'm Joe, joking, you're a mayor you want to be a governor I would argue that that has a lot to do with snowstorms. <laughs> well, you know, snowstorms is funny. Um, digress a little bit. Can they say uh, maybe not make uh, a chief executive, mayor, or governor, but sometimes can break them? The whole story of Bridgeport. You 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 anticipate me in here, Joe. Jasper McLevy. Yep. He was the mayor of Bridgeport. Uh, he was from the Socialist Party, but he was known for not spending money. Just for the uh... which which is um, admired by people that say, "Wait a minute, why you know." How much do I pay in taxes? What do I where, where do they go for? And there's, you know, the winning side of most of those arguments is you pay too much in taxes, no matter how much it is. At least right. in the argument. So Jess McLevy was the mayor all the way from 1933 until 1957. Long time. He was popular. He kept taxes down. He was a socialist working man's mayor. But then something did him in, according to legend. You're going to tell me if it's true because you are a Bridgeport mayor, so you probably know all about this. The legend we always heard is there was a big snowstorm. And Jasper McLevy said, God put the snow there, let him take it away. And people revolted and they said, we don't, we count on our government to clear the streets. We're not counting on God to take it away. Is that a true story? Well, because you said, you know, my, my, mayor. yeah, my, um, my sources are probably only as good as yours in, in, in this. <laughs> I certainly need them. So I think we're around then. So I'm told, or I think I read. Um, that it was actually his public works director, oh. but it's attributable to him. And there's a name to the director where I read it. I just don't know the name one and two that it, um, he said that, but that was not, um, that was not the cause of his, uh, demise. Some would say that he actually outlived his voter base. Oh, he was mayor for so long. He's the longest serving. Years. I happen to be the second longest serving, uh, Bridgeport mayor, even, even before I think broken my broken service. So even though it's a legend, I always had a sense it was a legend. Yeah. That is the snowstorm did him in. You're not taking any chances, right? Any mayor today in this modern age knows that, like I know Tony Harper, New Haven, she hears much more than anything else about whether those streets are plowed. That's right. And our guys are out there. Our, our, our public public uh, works employees are out there. He's got 49 pieces of equipment out there. And um, we actually, I was a little bit tentative on closing down City Hall today. So last night we said, let's close it till. New, close city offices or city buildings till noon 
And then quickly this morning, we were reminded that the right decision was to close for the day. Yeah. So that's what we did. You're always waiting to see how it's actually going to turn out. Yeah, because, you know, there's there's, there's financial implications um, too, too detailed to get into that if you close for the day, it's who gets and people have to come in. It's overtime versus straight time. Da, 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 but uh, but I'm go. actually interested in that, Joe, because one thing I wanted to ask you was, would you agree with me that the job of governor, since we're in an era of climate change, has begun to resemble the job of mayor and hands-on public works? And I'll tell you why I'm, I'm throwing that theory out for you. Ella Grasso was mayor in the 70s, and she had one huge storm. It's a storm that defined her career, and she was the first modern-age governor to broadcast live from where they had all the trucks for the state and people were hanging on the governor that happened once it was considered one big storm for every 20 years the only time they had to do that bill o'neill didn't have to do that daniel malloy gets elected in 2010 it's the year of climate change he has four monster storms that equal ella grass's storm in his first four years now i don't know if you're a climate change believer climate change denier do you think this has changed the job of governor is it more a job of mayor now well one i believe in the in this data that shows that for better or for worse we're undergoing climate change but um as far as the job yeah i mean that would be an example where you're and have to be conscious of the call it climate change weather implications in this case we're talking about snowstorms sometimes you're talking about flooding um natural disasters certainly along the coastline here. I think sometimes we're more the victim of, of, of that. So yes, I think there is. I think there's more that you're not as loft. The position is not, I don't say lofty is probably not the right term, but as lofty where you can kind of like, okay, they're handling it down it. there. You know, no, I think people do have an expectation now more and more um, that you are more hands-on a little bit. And um, that have you to, have to be more of a public works. Like I believe that Beloy was the first urban mayor in a long, long time to become a governor and he's had to use those skills that he had in Stanford to deal with storms. So, for instance, what have you learned about snowstorms, Joe? Tell me something about over the years in Bridgeport when you've had big storms. You were talking a few minutes ago about how you have to balance the need to keep costs under control before you decide to clever city hall, close city hall for a whole day because then you could be paying a lot of overtime. What else did you learn through experience about how to deal with a weather emergency? Well, it's kind of stupid, not stupid stuff, but common sense stuff, let's say. Uh, preparation. Uh, for instance, when I first came in way, way back, um, I took over from a prior mayor and um, we got a storm early on. This is like 91. We got a huge storm. Um, and the equipment we had was busted up. They were driving around. They couldn't plow um, and ended up with 10 or making up a number, 10 or 12 trucks on the street. And we just, we just couldn't keep up with it and it, getting calls and calls. I remember the sheet. It was a was a the long legal pads filled with calls and complaints, calls and complaints, pages and pages in the mayor's office. You know, people were calling. That was that's what you would do. You would call. You didn't have this automated thing. That's right. Now we have systems like VOC in New Haven, where every citizen's complaint immediately goes into a database that all these people can share electronically. And the time, so you'd have. So you started with legal pads. Oh my! And it was pads and pads, and you know they'd be there. Yes, we'll respond to you. The phone ring, and so people be nasty, and you know you got to take care of that. And who who knew who would try and call and. So, um, so what I had to do, um, at some point, and it was two or three days. I mean, this was people were people were snowed in. Um, we hired the private companies, which is not uncommon now. I'm sure not in New Haven, either. Where we hired whoever the four or five or six equipment uh, private contractors were, and we put them out in the street with some of them with um, with buckets and um, and, and big pieces of equipment. Said so you got just get the snow out of here. You, you just got we just got to do it. Um, weather wasn't changing. It wasn't getting warm. You know, you look for that. If it's, weather's going to warm the next day, you're like, oh, okay, maybe I can save, uh, pick a number, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for this citizen. So, so I learned, have the right equipment, invest in the equipment up front and be prepared. And, um, and then, you know, there's, there's this management thing about cycles. So probably more information than you want, but no, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Okay. So, so you, you put your team out there and your timing and when you start, um, whether you do prep ahead of time or not, whether you put down salt, uh, sand, kind of thing. But then the cycle, depending on the, the weather cycle, is, is predicted. In other words, you can burn your whole crew out uh, in the first whatever it is, how many hours, right? The mm-hmm. first 12 hours or, or even even 24 if it ends up going longer. And then you're like, geez, I got nobody to put out on the road. You call guys, they don't come in. You know, you can, yeah. so, so you've got to, um, that's got to be managed almost 
in real time, depending on the amount of snow that's expected, the reliability of the weather reports mm-hmm. and, and your, and your equipment and your, and your manpower. So, you know, and, and you try and push back with safety things and it makes your job easier with people, uh, alternate side of street parking, um, do you tow cars or don't you, you know, that has implications as well. Certainly saves you and the ability to get a street cleared, but then, you know, you got 10, 20 people that are mad because their cars were towed. But, but those 10, 20 people get mad, but then you get a hundred neighbors who are mad if they can't get through their street because the parked car prevented the plow. We've had cycles of that in New Haven, Joe, where a bunch of people made noise. They didn't like being towed. So they didn't tow them the next time a narrow street. And then all these other people couldn't get through because the plow couldn't get through. And we've gone back and forth. Now what they do is they have a heat map in New Haven of where the most tickets were issued the last storm. And they go the night before, they went the night before last night in New Haven to those exact streets and do flyers and sound trucks. Yeah, makes sense. So so, 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 so all of that, you know, is, is, I don't want to say is touchy-feely, but is, but is kind of like management uh, uh, while you're going through it. Um, and and we, so it's an interesting dynamic. And, and, and so I think what you do... Everyone does if, if you if you're doing it right. Is you drop everything else, and this mm-hmm. is this is what you do. You, you you handle the storm. What about sleep? Like when it's starting, don't you have to make sure that you and your key people get some sleep? How do you figure that out? Because I yeah. see people looking ragged at our emergency operation. I was asking, did you get any sleep? We could have three hours there. Sure. You know, you de- if you've got a good staff, it's your department heads and your deputy department heads that can um, can handle this. And then you have your, if you have a good foreman, they're really depending, depending on how you've broken the city up into sectors or, or, or districts. Um, they're the ones that, that really primarily are in charge of making sure that their team, uh, those pieces of equipment and those employees are getting the job done and that they're cycled in and cycled out in the right way and nobody gets burnt out. So, um, so there's a lot of management going to it in a short period of time. All right. And we, you are listening to Mayor Joe Gannon, who's running for governor of Connecticut. Talking to us not just about snow removal, but what it means to be governor in Connecticut in this new modern era. We're on WNHHFM's Dateline New Haven program. Thank you for the questions that are coming in on Facebook Live. We will get to them. I want to just start out and ask Joe Gannon some basic big picture questions, then we'll get to B. Jammin and the other folks who have uh, written in. So you announced this week that you're running, Joe. I, I, I got you in the weeds here because you've talked about one of the pitches you've been making for governor is that you feel that someone who has experience running a city brings a particular strength to the job that's needed. Tell me about that. Because, you know, cities aren't very popular. Our legislature suburbs run the state until Dan Malloy, I believe, what was it, a century? Or how long was it before we had an urban mayor um, take over the state? What is your pitch about running a city, building on this discussion of snow removal, hands-on work? Why does this make you the right person for the Democrats to nominate? Well, I think that's one piece of it. Um, one of it is another, another piece of it. I think it, there's two other elements of what I've tried to talk about. It's the importance of cities, I think, in the dynamic of Connecticut. In other words, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, uh, again, without casting blame, but to have a focus on things that I would look at. And, and cities are a part of that, clearly. It's what, I, it's what I know. It's what I do. It's, um, it's something I think we can do better uh, statewide. And I think it just not just benefits or impacts favorably you know, the almost 150,000 people that live in, in Bridgeport, New Haven, for instance, or Hartford or, or, or any of our big cities, but ring suburbs and cities and towns across Connecticut. But I'll, I'll hold that part of it for a second because your question is more focused on, Gijo, your experience. You're, you're trying to say your experience as, as mayor of Bridgeport um, somehow makes you more qualified. And so it's not the, um, it's not that I'm a mayor and, and everything I've done as a mayor is, is, the type of thing that makes me a perfect candidate, although I consider myself more of an imperfect candidate because of my whole life, uh, some of the, some of the issues uh, in my life. But <coughs> it's the experience of balancing budgets, for instance, at a time when when Connecticut is first and foremost in a situation where budgets are not, um, let's say, the easiest thing to get our arms around. Let's just put it kindly, and then we can get into you know a little more a little more pointed. But so you got budgets that have been out of balance by two billion dollars, let's say at least initially, and maybe in the last two 2.5 cycles, two point five billion last cycle, two point five billion. You've got even after it's been kind of um, resolved, let's call it, it's unresolved again by a cu- almost a quarter billion. So, um, and this isn't to say oh they did it wrong or we did it. There's a way to do it right uh, that that should have been done. Uh, there were, th- there is though. I will tell you from my experience, and you've heard me say this before. 
I came into taking over Bridgeport, now this is early on, when there were projected $100 million deficits in a city budget. And we were able to work by working with people. And it's not magic or I'm smarter or anything like that, but working with people and trying to bring in a good team and then having good relationships and results with labor and management and with business and public sector um, and, and, and citizenry and, and being somewhat innovative, but really using other people's ideas. Can you time. give me an example of an idea you took? Like, for instance, a big part is always, will labor agree to modify benefits to, to hold down some of your major drivers of those deficits? But what, what was something that you picked up in this last go-round as mayor? When you came back, you inherited a deficit, you had to deal with yeah. it. It wasn't selling, was it selling buildings for one-time revenue? Well, this like time, New Britain? Yeah, so this time around, matter of fact, two weeks ago, we closed a bond sale where we had a outstanding pension liability or obligation of, uh, I don't know if it's $80 million by a transaction that was done with our police and fire pensions with the state of Connecticut into the state MRF fund. And so without getting into the, the, the weeds too much here, um, there was the estimated payment at a rate of return of about 8%. And that's just not a real rate of return. But regardless, that's what the... Uh, is that 8% is what you paid each year, estimated rate of return on the bonds? Well, the 8% was, is, is what, until recently, the state pension fund was predicated on as far as its, its returns, and those are always overestimated, dramatically over. They've they've averaged five point five percent. We've had that at every level of government. Well, this is pretty. I mean, anybody says they get eight percent, I want to give them my money. Say so here, you know, what little I have. So um, they did just recently reduce it, I think, to six point nine. But regardless of that, we were able to go out and not ask. We didn't ask the state for money, but we said, hey, give us the authority to go out, take advantage of what's called the favorable. Uh, climate environment for for selling municipal bonds taxed tax sorry what's monthly. that called the fair what i called the favorable uh, interest environment because uh-huh. the interest on on municipal bonds whether it's right, taxable it's or non-taxable yeah. is let's say four percent um, give or take so it's about half so by doing a transaction just doing a transaction not asking for money and then uh, using city's full faith and credit and paying in borrowing and then paying in we over the life 20 year life of the uh, of those bonds and those and that pension fund now saved the taxpayers of, of the city some sixty million dollars. So, you know, you can were you re, were you refinancing debt by floating that bond for the pension funds? Or well, we were, I won't say refinancing. We were financing um, pension obligations that had been made by the prior administration to the state of Connecticut to enter into their fund. Mm-hmm. We had put whatever assets, money. So one of your arguments, and obviously I think you might be referring to Luke Bronin, the mayor of Hartford, another candidate for Democratic nomination governor, just got a $40 million bailout from the state saying that's what's going to keep us afloat. Well, You're saying rather than get money from the state, you can get authority to do savvier you know borrowing? I, I wasn't really referring to, to Hartford, but, but pointing to you on the question was, gee, Joe, what are some of the things... You, you do other yeah. than just negotiate with unions. This is what we did. We didn't negotiate with you. This is the way we said, wait a minute, we should do this. It just makes good sense. And we convinced state officials to allow us to do it because the law was precluded at the time. So that's something. But on the, on the, the negotiation stuff, things that we did do before uh, with, with healthcare plans. So that was pensions, healthcare plans. We were able to, way back when, when I took over then, we had been insured by major insurance company for health insurance, and they, they terminated the city before I came into office. And so we had to figure out, what are we going to do? So we decided, it wasn't, didn't take rocket science, we figured out, let's go self-insured with an outside administrator, have somebody administer the program, but we'll self-insure ourselves. That's yeah, so what we do in New Haven. Yeah. Right. And um, but we had to agree on, on benefits, and our benefits were cost of benefits on, on the city side. Taxpayers were paying. We're escalating at like 20% a year, and I don't know if it was $5 million a year, $10 million a year, I can't remember the numbers exactly. But they were part of what was pushing the city uh, or supporting the premise that the city, should, Bridgeport at the time, in the early 90s, should have gone bankrupt when the mayor tried to. And they used those numbers. Mary Moran. Right, exactly. So they used those numbers to say, look it, this is what's going to happen. This number's going up, 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 and there's nothing we can do. And, and we're going to run out of money, and, and, and we're going to have to go bankrupt. And so um, we said, wait a minute, let's try and figure it out. And we, just to put a little bit more, more visual on it, um, we did what was called a labor, and this is not, you know, we didn't reinvent the wheel here, but we did a labor management cooperative. And we sat around the table as opposed to kind of across the table with all of our local municipal unions and said, how do we figure this out? 
We all have a vote. Everybody's got something to say. And um, let's figure, let's set some goals, financial. How do we cap We're setting our costs? up a self-insurance plan, what benefits will be in there and what the cost will be. And how do we cap our costs without compromising benefits beyond what we think are acceptable? Because we're all in this. Everybody has, everybody's, if you work for the city, you get. And this was a formal cooperative setup where labor and management both had equal say or. Yeah, everybody had say. And so we had to come to an agreement collectively as to what we wanted to, to do. What year did you do that? It was the early 90s. I don't know. Actually, it might have taken us over a year. And how's that self-insurance fund doing? Still doing well. Still doing well. Now, we capped our costs for about five years. Uh, I don't know. I, I probably have to go back and look at you know, how they've changed since then. I can't tell you they've been capped for the last So, Joe, years. you just gave me two examples. You said there are ways that, as a mayor, you've had to deal with inherited deficits that you feel can avoid the route of having bailouts. You, you know, you go through... Um, get different kind of borrowing authority to make different advantage of interest rates or bring people together to do some kind of negotiate some on health care or self insurance. Like kind of bigger picture. So kind how of do you bring to... that to governor? Because obviously Dan Malloy had known that those tactics exist. What could you do differently as governor? I have... we have structural economic deficits. Yeah, I think style wise, I, I would hope. Um certainly not successful at like anyone else at everything we do or I do. But um with some degree of success in even in difficult situations, getting people to work together and understanding how to move forward a common agenda um, mm-hmm. would be, I think, a consistent strength that I think may be different style than others. But my style, I think, that's at least brought whatever successes I've been able to garner as, as mayor on the, on, on the positive stuff. And, and then I think in the area of job creation, um, we've had some pretty good scores if you will positive things happen as far as investment in bridgeport most notably i think i might have mentioned this on the show last time you know, where it's hard to get investors come in from out of state and come into urban centers because of a variety of challenges some are high taxes and so on a uh, high cost of, of of land because of when you're converting environmental issues or, or older sites but um we just had signed a 400 million dollar a little more than a four hundred million dollar deal to refurbish our historic theaters in downtown Bridgeport. You talk about Jasper McCleavy; these go back past Mayor McCleavy, the old Poli and Majestic theaters, and um, we'll recapture their grandeur and beauty. Are those empty now? Or are they they're empty used? now? They've been empty. For so we did that in the eighties in New Haven with our Poli, Lowe's Poli, and the Schubert Theater. We, we we renovated those, and those doing well. Phenomenal. You know, it, it's a type of thing that if you're if you're blessed enough as a city to have, like New Haven does, like Waterbury does, like Bridgeport does, right, You need to find never been able to do it. Find someone who would help you invest in. And is that going to be privately owned or publicly owned? Well, it'll be privately owned, but the theater themselves, at least there's two there, and there's probably at least one committed for. Um, restoration um, will be donated back, I think, at our choice, either to the city or to a nonprofit. And maybe we'll do it with our education. Yeah, we did system. a nonprofit with the palace. And then the city throws in a lot of infrastructure improvements, make the district nice and help Perfect. help businesses work. We'll have to check the model in New Haven and maybe maybe replicate it. And we're checking with Joe Gannam, who's the mayor of Bridgeport. He's running for governor as a Democrat. And he's here on WNHH's Dateline New Haven. So we got some people writing in. Eileen O'Leary asks, are you going to raise taxes if you're elected governor? Yeah, it's funny. I had this, not funny, it's serious. I had this, of uh, course, this question about 10 times yesterday. And, um, <laughs> you know, what I, what, I, what I said in the backdrop was, because who knows what the future is, and, of course, the last thing I want to do, or anybody that's mayor um, or, or governor, I guess, even is, 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 is raise taxes. It's, it's not what you want to do. It's not popular, and... It, it, it raises tax on everybody, and I think it has a negative uh, co- impact on some of the things we want to do. I held, even after bankruptcy, I held the line on taxes in Bridgeport, which is tough, for 10 years in a row, and I guess some would argue even slightly cut them a little bit, but not, not really enough to really make an impact. But um, So my goal would be to set, and we just held the line again on taxes in Bridgeport this year, my goal would be, whether it's as mayor or, or as governor, to go with every other option. Um, now, I don't know the depth and the breadth of what is the challenge right now as far as state government. I've heard. But I will go in and take a hard look um, with hopefully people that are the best and the brightest or the smartest that will join a team to... Uh, and of course, people remember Lowe Weicker said that's like adding fuel to a fire, gasoline to a fire when he ran for governor in 1990 to do an income tax, which those of us who support income tax in the media said vote for him because he clearly just didn't rule it out. Then he said, I got the smartest guy in the room who happened to be Bill Sibis, his... Uh, 
budget director who was Don't being proponent of the uh, income tax. Do I understand your question to Eileen? Answer it on no, the so I'm not question. playing word games. With no, I, I know. Yeah. I, what I'm hearing you say is I'm not going to, I can't without looking at the numbers make a promise, but I can tell you that my record has been through two similar challenging times. I've not raised taxes, so I don't want to raise taxes. I'm not going to make a promise. I'm going to break. Well put. Better put the money. All right. I did. Oh, you don't have to say that. Alex Andres Guzne just wrote in, who is your potential lieutenant governors? Whom do you have in mind? Hmm. <coughs> I haven't gotten that far. I think what happens usually is as you get towards a convention, which is in May. Dan Jew's gotten that far. Yes, he has. You're right. You're right. I'm not right. Most people don't. They wait till the convention. I think, yeah. I, so that would be the way I would expect to proceed. I do you, know You that, were quoted saying you're interested in Tony Harp, mayor of New Haven. What, I think what I, what I said before that was that when somebody says, well, what do you think about, let's say, another mayor, I always de- defer, and I don't mean this insincerely, I mean this sincerely, let's say to Mayor Harp, if she, you don't say, oh, she'd be a great lieutenant governor. She'd be a great governor if she wanted to be gov- you know, wanted to run. Mm-hmm. That, that, which I think is, based on her track record of, 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 of public service uh, as mayor and as um, state senator. So, but when you get beyond whether or not that's in the, you know, part of the discussion, Bridgeport and New Haven have created and exist as I speak to you now, I think one of the strongest partnerships that we've had historically. And part of it is, I think the ability and the willingness for New Haven and Bridgeport and our teams to work together as we started to, and, and finished at least until we know what's going to happen with Amazon on the Amazon application. We said, wait a minute, this is bigger than than any of our cities in Connecticut. How do we look at this as a region, which is very healthy? And you did and that also in terms of trying to get a casino, MGM, to build a casino. And now your regional economic development groups are saying, let's work together pitch, pitching at regional development conferences. Exactly. So is your answer to Alex, I'm not going to say who the time governor, we do that close to convention. I think Tony Harper, if she ever wanted to do it, would be great given the Absolutely. partnership we have with Bridgeport and New Haven. Eileen O'Leary gives you a thumb up for your answer to her on taxes for honesty. I appreciate Honest that. response, thumbs up, Eileen O'Leary. B. Jammin has a couple questions for you. I okay. think B. Jammin has one of the better Facebook handles of people listening to the show. Um, what would you do to make sure that police who commit crimes get prosecuted the same as civilians? Everything that I, everything that I can or that we can. I mean, there's, there's no question that, you know, the, the added element in, of, of, Police officers, if they commit a crime, have to be treated the same way. But the added element, this is an individual who has legal right to carry a gun, um, you know, means that that highest level of responsibility has to be has to be followed. So I don't know whether you're talking about a specific example when they're in office. But you've had to, let's go back to May. You've had to negotiate this. Mayors in this country since um, the wave of uh, the rise of the um, Black Lives Matter movement have had to negotiate because you're a mayor, so you can't just make statements that don't have consequences with the people you manage. You've had to show support for police to do their jobs well when they're often under attack. And you've had to show support for your citizens. You had a bad case in Bridgeport when they are abused by police and making sure there's transparency and accountability. How have you navigated that line specifically in this era? You know, I don't think there's a, a, a plan of navigating. I think you act and react um, to a certain extent based on the set of circumstances that, are, that are, exist at the time in the case. Many times, though, um, in fairness to the deliberation process of the judgment, at least in Bridgeport, it's not the mayor who um, does discipline. We're talking about officers who may breach or do something wrong um, in the line of in the line of duty. Uh, the first answer on that, if it's appropriate internally, it's done by the chief, and to some extent by the board of police commissioners. Although that power shifted to the police under a prior contract, the the outstanding recent issues uh, are not handled by Bridgeport at all. It's not internal affairs. It's not the chief of police. It's not the mayor. It is, it is the, the state's attorney's office and the state police, independent, separate. And whatever the results are on those um, are, will, will be put into place just as they've been kind of. State attorney does investigate when there are allegations made about police yes. officers of misuse. Um, Kate Rosen just wrote in with a question for Mayor Ganim, candidate for uh, governor. What are some other ways to generate revenue besides taxes? Well, you touched on one, and, and I know it's somewhat, oh, I'm not in favor of, or I am in favor of the expansion of casino gambling. And, and so I don't, and, and I, I'm sensitive to both sides of that, because I think anything like, uh, there, there are certain things in our society that could cause or add to uh, or create challenges socially for people, whether it's right, alcohol, get addicted whether to it's gambling. gambling. So, yeah. so I get, and I don't want to, my answer is not to be insensitive to that, and that we have to kind of understand and recognize that and, 
And I always say, if there's going to be something you're looking at for revenue or job creation, as this would be, that some element of that goes to address or attempt to address what might be the, the downside or, or, or the implications or the, or the, um, or, or the impact. But so casino gambling, let's say in Bridgeport, if Bridgeport wants it, and I'm taking my hat off as Bridgeport mayor, I'm saying, wait a minute, as a statewide guy, if Bridgeport wants it, why wouldn't we allow Bridgeport to get, um, if MGM wants to come in, they're by far a credible company, no doubt, and they want to spend $675 million. They've already entered into a private partnership with an existing developer, not to supplant, but to complement existing development to create recreation, hotel, and a casino are willing to meet the financial needs of the state of Connecticut and exceed what we're getting now um, and create a job center in New Haven. And as they say, you know, thousands, I think I said 7,000 jobs. Um, I'm not sure what the downside of that is, except in fairness, now not with my Bridgeport hat on, but as someone statewide, that we don't want to lose jobs or hurt existing businesses, whether they're separate tribe or not, in eastern Connecticut. So I think you'd be sensitive to all of that, but that's we, one way. We also, won't we also lose revenue in our deal with the Massatucket Pequots? Well, Isn't I think it's partly that us yeah, against them. Yeah, my answer seemed to include that. That's got to be resolved. There's what nobody, does that mean? I mean, how would that you means it? that either there's got to be some reconciliation between the two. Let's say it was MGM, and I don't know what the process. Whether there should be a, an RFP. Pro, I, I, the lawyers would have to tell us what what the process is. But once you get down to it. If there's something that would challenge or put into question that revenue source, that's got to be resolved. The state can't turn around and say, oops, we just gave up $200 million, you know, because we want, um, we want to change horses. So I'm, and I'm sensitive to that. And I think there's a way um, that these, that that can be addressed or should be addressed. So if you can do that, you can bring more revenue in. You've got to meet the existing revenue source and I think exceed it. And then I think it helps. Uh, it could help with, with job creation, which also adds. And then, and, and you've heard all the arguments pro and con. One, another one of the arguments is that that's not a viable long-term revenue source. A because competition moves in. So we've already seen a lot of casinos open since the Mastaka Peak Wetzel and Mohegan Sun. Now you got in Springfield where they're building one, and so there's all this comp that eventually so, you're basically. I mean, the argument against is that you're preying on people with gambling addictions that create all sorts of new problems. In the meantime, you're getting some money up front, but over time, that's not a stable. Well, I think that's well put. I think you're, I think you're right on that. I mean, I'm not sure that those, that those arguments necessarily overcome or, or, or trump, so to speak, the arguments of the possible benefits or change position of that. I would, I would be supportive. And, and you could say that about many economic development projects that like, look at Alexiana New Haven. They came for a year and a half and they moved out. So right. the other side of the coin is this is a big employee and, bring in. and, 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 we and a dynamic economy with creative destruction that you're going to have to keep dancing. And you've had GE leave and you've had, you know, Aetna leave and, you know, and you're saying, wait a minute, what can we do to bring in? And the other ones are, you know, the, the ones, and they're somewhat controversial, but there are elements out there that are non-taxable ways to bring in more money. And, you know, what so would not, be an example? Well, I mean, it, it, controversial, um, but um, how much, I don't know whether it goes general fund necessarily or transportation fund is it, why is it the Massachusetts could have these invisible tolls and bring in all this money from, uh, from truckers and out of state. What's well, controversial now? I mean, we had, Klutz, the name of the truck driver who killed those people when he went into a toll plaza. We don't have those toll plazas anymore with the overhead, so there's not the safety right. issue. We're paying tolls. We go into other states. They can even, uh, another candidate for governor, um, Dita, came in and said she likes a governor. She said that she likes the idea of even staggering what, how much you pay based on what time of day and having people who live out of state pay more. Tolls are not what tolls used to be. Right. So what would be the argument against tolls? Well, there's still people that's, that are against it. I'm not saying it's my argument. I'm just, as you, as we have a casino argument in favor of, and we think that the prevailing argument should be that A, B, and C, there's people. I guess one people, some people argue, well, you're not going to use that money for transportation, which my response is, okay, we won't use it for transportation. We're a democracy. We'll use it for what we're going to use it for. That's why you raise revenue. By the way, depending on the amount, I would probably argue or, 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 or put out there that some of it should go to building infrastructure because transportation is a critical element, I think, for, um, for quality of life. For uh, retention and, and so tolls and casinos. What about legalized marijuana recreational use? Same thing. Euphoric? I think between the three of them, you could have. Uh, don't have hard runs on these numbers. Probably an additional billion dollars. Maybe not immediately, but additional billion dollars annually um, coming into the state of Connecticut without increasing or looking to increase taxes. Or and plus, marijuana can be a homegrown industry. We don't have to fight with other states for that. And you know, I'm not a big costs. Colorado fan, but I read somewhere, and I hate to quote this because it could be wrong. But the city of Denver, not the state of Colorado, the city of Denver, much bigger than Bridgeport and New Haven, certainly, uh, has has reaped, and I don't know if this is direct or indirect, so again, careful on my quote, $200 million 
last year. So what do you got against Colorado? I heard it's nice there. No, no, no. There. But I think that the the, the fast pace. Well, I'm not. Uh, no, I'm a beautiful color. I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of the fast pace oh. and the experiment that's going on and and the challenges that it well, has. Well, now we be. have I think five or six states who are experimenting, so we can watch. Yeah. Governor Malloy, who was against legalizing marijuana recreational use, said that given that Massachusetts done it, we might have to anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's all although look, it's small just, states. The attorney general, though, now is going to maybe pick a fight on it. We heard this week. Yeah, I haven't followed that. And that's He's, another issue. The banks, you know, the, the whole banking industry. Right, it's all and, cash. Yeah. and, and you that, can't do interstate commerce. So that's, you know. But look, at the reality is, and we, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, we have a marijuana industry in this country, in Connecticut now. It's a cash business. Um, it's, it's run by non-verified uh, or reputable business people, right, so to speak. I mean, I'm being kind in my terms. Um, and uh, so, so what are we talking about? You know, this is not... So, look, by the way, let me, having said all that, having said all that, I've got a 16-year-old son, and I'm not in the position to sit or look to encourage young people to become marijuana smokers and marijuana users, uh, certainly not at... Has he ever had the conversation with your dad? Did you used to? Uh, actually, no. Yeah, my girls are grown up. They never asked. They knew, but, you know, yeah. it's kind of interesting. But we are talking here with Joe Gannon, mayor of uh, Bridgeport, running for governor. WNHH-FM, your home for community radio at 103.5 FM. We, I love all these questions coming in. Are you for green solutions? Boy, that's a softball. Thanks, Kate, for the question. But in addition, if you're going to say yes, what kind of green solutions? No, no, Bridgeport has, and I, you know, it's hard for me to do this, uh, but I'll do it. Credit my predecessor to a certain extent. Um, who, you don't like crediting that guy, huh? No, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> that was I a do. Rough I do. I'm, no, I'm a, real, I'm a real person. No, I I. I do credit um, putting into place some of the things that have we've built on um, to continue to make hopefully Bridgeport. And I'd like to think even as part of what I do, Connecticut for Connecticut, make us an example of green when I, on the East Coast more so than than I see anybody doing. Um, the most I think the intriguing one, which I'll take credit for to a certain extent, along with businesses, was a thermal loop. That what is a thermal loop? I knew you were going to ask that. And if to stump you is pretty good. <laughs> I don't know, I'm an expert. I, um, I care about environmental stuff, but I do kind of fall yeah, asleep. You know, on we the have, um, we're doing some very innovative green um, things in, in, in the city of Bridgeport. But I think the most least seen as innovative in this part of the country, even in the United States, is a thermal loop. It is, and I went to, um, I went to Denmark to um, talk about it. We got to recognize as the city in North America, and there was a mayor there from Asia, and um, it is it is basically hot water, not steam, that's piped, um, taken sometimes from um, from it could be in our case from our, our waste energy plant that exists in Bridgeport through pipes into the downtown area. We call it'll be a thermal loop that loops the downtown and heats the buildings, as opposed to gas or as opposed to oil or as opposed to electricity. And um, obviously, it's environmentally uh, carbon neutral um, and um, cost efficient once you've done the infrastructure. The infrastructure is just pipes. You don't have to worry about pressure pipes because it's not steam. We all think steam, steam, steam. Oh my God, you're not going to burst and you need certain kind of. And, and you're not burying them 10 feet down. I think it's 18 or, or whatever the frost line is stuff. I'm not really all on that. Um, but um, you're piping hot water in and you're heating buildings with it. It's that simple. Um, and it's very prominent in um, pervasive, maybe the better word, in, in Europe. Uh, I think. And these, you're doing that where in Bridgeport? Public buildings? Yeah, it would be the downtown kind of, the, we have a kind of a teardrop district, the loop there. Private investors are doing it. Uh, we're providing um, whatever it is, easements, and they're going to pay taxes on some of the, on the equipment. And the University of Bridgeport is also um, engaged in doing a thermal loop for the university as well. So. I think there's ways, and I, we'll talk about this over the next couple of months as a statewide candidate, that green also saves money, not only environmentally good, mm -hmm. but we've got examples in the state's largest city, an old industrial urban town, which you know probably produced more pollutants uh, before my lifetime than you know, you'd like to admit. Um, but, uh, but yes, that, and, 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 and your, your listeners may understand this, they will understand it, but they may remember this. The la they probably remember the filthy five or the sooty yep, six. Yep, we had one of those in New Haven. Absolutely, station. the last the most coal burning right the in New Haven. The last coal burning plant in the state of Connecticut is now under an agreement to be decommissioned. Decommissioned means shut down. Uh, in some, it was sixty months. It's probably forty eight months now. 
uh, in Bridgeport on Bridgeport's waterfront. It's being replaced by a 385 megawatt, $550 million investment um, by, I call it clean. It's not perfectly clean because it's still fossil, which is gas powered. And we'll, we'll provide um, that for some half, half of 500 million households. Oh, wow. So that transition from coal and, and it's oil too, um, and the eliminate the decommissioning and hopefully the elimination of that off of Bridgeport's waterfront is a huge step that, again, is under the Ganim administration. So you're not agreeing with Donald Trump that coal is, the, is a future for our energy economy? No, I'd like to see us transition to, um, to some of the things that I've just, just pointed to, whether it's thermal loops. Um, and by the way, Amazon has, their Seattle headquarters has a thermal loop. That's like the only other one I know of in the country. Um, so it's that kind of like thinking. It's that's where, it's, where um, we'd like to see kind of my thinking on energy go that can be friendly to the environment, but also friendly to business pocketbooks. And Joe, you, and Joe, our listeners are asking about that incident yesterday when you were being driven to your announcement in Hartford and your driver was going nine miles an hour and he didn't get a ticket. So people are saying what civilian cars can drive 90 miles an hour without getting a ticket. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't driving. Um, I think he was, there was some back and forth over what the exact speed was. Right. They said 87 at the state. And yeah. The and there was a, uh, a verbal warning given and, um, you know, that's the extent of my involvement. I was in the car course. Um, I don't know how fast we we're going. I really don't. I didn't look at it. I'd love to say, oh, we're doing, you know, 56. But you realize when you're running for governor, that's going to be discussed absolutely. more than like how you're going to solve the budget. Cause the everyday person could understand that and say, I don't get a ticket when I go hundred. Yeah, well, I've gotten plenty of tickets in my life. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten plenty of tickets. Not recently. Um, and, I, and there was no deference given um, to, uh, to me. I wasn't, I, you know, it wasn't like, hey, Joe's in the car or, or we were announcing. I don't think, I, and respectfully, um, and I, I, I'm going to say this on the air, um, the only thing, the only criticism I have about that whole incident, other than, well, one was I didn't, disrespecting the, uh, I don't think it was right to put the picture of, the, of uh, someone to take a picture of a state police officer and put it up like that. I didn't like that, and I, and I wouldn't have done that, and I didn't do that. But in fairness, we had a reporter in the car, and he was doing his, you know, what he thought was his his job, and, and he did it. I'm not, so, but uh, and that was the part that was kind of like, okay, you want to report on it, that we got pulled over, um, got a verbal warning, and, you know, we're sent on our way and told, you know, to slow down, then I think that's right. I didn't, I wasn't real a fan of, uh, so you're running for office at a time when American elections, some believe, are under attack. That whether it's Russian hackers or just people want to cause trouble and cause all sorts of mischief online. I know Denise Merrill, uh, Secretary of State, she's been part of a national group trying to protect systems in each state from hacking because there have been attempts revealed in 2016 where people tried to break into databases. Russia uh, succeeded in that temporarily in Ukraine. Are you, you had an incident where someone pretended to be you on Twitter. I found that really interesting because I realized every candidate has to deal with this now. Like before you run for office, you get someone who really knows election law and knows how to get your money and open the bank account and how to feel the team to pick up voters. Now you're going to have to get someone who understands social media and how to get someone who's trying to hurt you through deceptive means online. Tell me what happened in this latest incident and what you learned from it and how you're going to deal with that. Pararuski. What's that? Vimet Panamaya Pararuski. That's Russian. It says, do you speak Russian? But uh, I said, it's got to be Putin. It's got to be Putin. <laughs> Joking. Um, but uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of where these, these, some of these. But didn't someone open an account and say it was they like did. a Joe Gannon for governor or something? Yeah, that's, um, it, it's interesting. Um, and I, I, I will tell you, I think there's going to be more of this in a high profile campaign. Every campaign. Probably every campaign. I mean, it's, What's it's, to stop anyone from just taking your picture and opening a social media account pretending to be you? Yeah, and we're trying to be very careful, and I'll say this to your listeners, that they want to follow us. Make sure it's an authentic account. How I do have, you know? Well. Reporters were fooled on this one. How do you know? Reporters are fooled. And reporters I would have been fooled if I were covering that. I would Again, I, you know, I don't like to, 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 to say stuff no, no, about no, reporters because they got a lot more ink here. than I do. But they um, no, I'd be, they didn't I'd, check their sources when they when they ran the stories. But I could be so easily fooled when I go online. I mean, I'm not savvy enough to know when someone's yeah. putting a picture up No, no, list. and you're right. And, and by the way, my ki- my daughter, we were, we were at the table last night. And we, this topic came up, and she pulled up, and she said, oh, Dad, wait, I've been following you on the wrong... Uh, on right, the wrong, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So what did happen? Someone announced you were running, but it was an account by someone who's actually against you, right? Well, I don't know. You know, we had, in the, in the when I ran for mayor last time, we had a couple, <clears throat> we called them over-enthusiastic supporters. And before I announced, there were people putting down web, uh, Facebook sites in Bridgeport saying, Joe for mayor. So they, they weren't trying to hurt you. But I thought these were guys who actually on other occasions... We're putting pretty nasty stuff about well, you. Well, I up, think, yeah, what I think happened was 
and this one, uh, and the Twitter account went up, so the inside kind of the backdrop of it was, we saw the Twitter go up, oh, no, we saw the article, somebody sent me the article, says, you tweeted out your announcing, I said, and I'm like, no, we're announcing next week, we're trying to kind of do this, you know, with some type of, some logic, or some methodically to a certain extent, which, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but, and then um, I called people that work with me on this, and I said, did we, did we tweet this out? No, we didn't. So can you check? We didn't tweet it out. So and it didn't look negative, and it wasn't. Right. It was. Oh, it was like, hey, yeah. you know. So I'm like, okay. And then um, I'm like, well, what you know, what do we do? So we waited the next morning. Uh, the article had come out, and then I guess they took it down. I'm just telling you what I, I don't know if it's actually accurate, but this is what I thought was happening. And then it came up again only with something negative stuff on yeah. it, like uh, joe to prison and now i've or, got your attention joe for governor yeah. hey he's running at a time when it wasn't in your interest to say you're running officially and then so then it looks like they're on your side then they start razzing you and then we had um what was the second one that came out something came out oh a news report about uh you know joe's endorsed by uh Trump and you know crime in Bridgeport is zero. But that could be done. I mean, remember Hillary Clinton when they said she had a sex ring for kids in this pizza parlor, and yeah. someone came and shot it up. I mean, this isn't. It so, is funny, but it's not funny. So it's interesting. You know, you, we, a couple things that come to mind, and just off the top of my head, one is you know we're all talking about, and, and I'm talking about it too, how campaigns have changed. So oh geez, you don't have to spend millions of dollars on TV now or on conventional uh, ads because you have this whole new medium. You know that you can go out. But then you see the challenges involved with its credibility, its accuracy, and its fake news. I don't know that we have an answer right now. In other but words, the answer is you got to get someone who's half our age, right? But even they what are they going to do? The how stuff. are they going to shut it? They they don't know how to get on there and, yeah. and smoke people out and follow the stuff when it comes up and pat it down. <laughs> yeah, you need some. You know, they said the KGB was actually working with. I mean, not KGB, the, the Russian government was actually working with these like twenty-something hackers that a lot of these cases that were blown up were kind of shady underworld to like mess up the entire economy of Estonia. Yeah. with attacks so but the, yeah that is modern campaigning and we do have to watch out for that so how do people follow your campaign joe ganim and know that it's coming from you where do they go to find out the info yeah we've we've got i'm going to give you the exact um i'm going to have a text me the exact uh handles and i'll give those to you before we get off the okay before we go off the, because we're almost out of time so yesterday rolling the mars a state rep because miles state lexus on the radio here on dateline new haven and he said he thinks the democrats are in trouble this year joe they say that because the state is so upset with Dan Malloy, they're blaming him rightly or wrongly, he felt wrongly, for the city's economic mess. They are upset at the Democrats because they've been in control in Hartford at the legislature and the governor's office for two terms now and longer in the legislature. So Lamar himself said, I own some of the problem. We've made decisions they haven't all worked out the way we want. So he says the Democrats are such a damaged brand that it's going to be very hard to win the governor's race in 2018, and we need a candidate who's going to be able to articulate a vision that isn't running from Dad Malloy, but sounds different and inspires people about where we're going to be four years from now. He says, I haven't heard that yet. So what's your pitch? What's your vision as a candidate for where you want to take Connecticut over the next four years? Well, I think that's, in some ways, I'm not sure I agree with the, with the doom and gloom about the, uh, you know, the prospects for, for the Democrats in general. Um, or about the backdrop of popularity of an incumbent um, in, in, du- in tough economic times. I mean, th- those are not like this is not reinventing the wheel. Um, but we see there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts now. I think the world of, of of public opinion, let's say, and visible public opinion, whether it's through polling or or interaction, not only not only is is is, is fickle. That I don't mean fickle. It like changes every two hours. Changes it changes. No one dramatically. remembers. No one's going to remember this driving ticket like in three days or and, what Trump tweeted. Right, and you have the Trump factor too. If you want to, you want to flip the coin over, and you want to go. You're and talking that's about R.D. Romano, the GOP chairman said that's what we're up against. He says the Republicans are against this extra enthusiasm Democrats have because of the Trump era. So, you, so this is going to sound outside the box, but this is based on on, on what you know limited brain power I have that I can apply to this that might have some some uh, see some light and, and recent experience, um, somewhat unique to me in running um, on a very difficult foundation. To a certain extent, as with my background, trying to get reelected mayor against a well-positioned Democratic incumbent, that if Jerry Romano and the Republicans want to continue to attack Joe Gannum as uh, a guy who's had a colorful past, let's put it in kind terms, and I'm, I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm not running away from the word felon or any of that. I'll be happy to talk about it. Bring it on, okay? Uh, they can just look at what the Finch people did and and uh, Marilyn Seacrest and the rest of them. 
where they just pounded away and pounded away and pounded away at that, where people rolled their eyes and said, okay, I get it. I get it. I understand what, what, you know, I understand what Joe's about. I understand, you know, the good things that he's done. I think I understand who this guy is as a person. And you know what? I understand. If you I'm want. not even asking about that. No, no, but I'm not asking but, about but, the felony. But I'm going to use it as a segue to get into all that. Okay. Because I think it, it, it differentiates me both good and bad from the other Democrats. Through that whole process, through that whole process, your, your mainstream uh, established Democrats, who can go nameless, because of course I love them all now because we're all on the same team, um, wouldn't go anywhere near uh, Joe Gannum. So I ran uh, as an outsider. I ran against what was. I, brought, I went out and I talked to people in, in neighborhoods, people who, who were affected, who needed, who wanted positive change in their lives, whether it was incremental or dramatic. And, 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 and that's what I plan on doing in this campaign. It's not going to be based on standing next to the establishment um, that's popular or unpopular. And I want to make positive change for Connecticut. And I want to focus it on um, people in mostly, certainly in every city and town. But I think the emphasis to move Connecticut forward has got to be different than what we're doing now, and it's got to be on cities. And it's got to be utilizing the, the brain power and the, and the, and the human uh, power in our cities to be the engine that, that change or to drive, I believe, a new Connecticut economy. And if we change that dynamic in just a couple of ways, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy because people will struggle with this, that we can change the dynamic for job creation um, for a better quality of life throughout Connecticut. And that's a lot of what I'm talking about. Um, so it won't be being painted with the big picture of, of some of the others. And hopefully it'll be a grassroots campaign that impacts and gets people energized, gets them involved, get them out to vote. And, uh, and make Cities is the engines for economic revival. Absolutely. All right. Joe Gannam, I want to thank you so much for braving a blizzard. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's at Joe Gannam 2018. That's in uh, Twitter. Twitter. And what about on Facebook? My Facebook page um, is, is, Joe G- is Gannam for Governor. Ganim for governor. Okay. Now I can't be the only, maybe not be the only Ganim for governor out That's there. That's we'll might see be it. like Ganim for governor. <laughs> it's not my brother, or my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Ganim, thanks so much Thank for bringing the blizzard. It's such a pleasure to have you back on Dateline in Haven. On Going out to shovel snow. All right. Snow, I said. Not not the other S word. Snow, shovel snow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks for joining us on Dateline New Haven. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. From the Griefs CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>